Shalom, and welcome to the UMJC Parsha Commentary Series. I'm Dave Nickel from Congregation Ruach Israel in Needham, Massachusetts. We're speaking about Parshat Devarim today. One of my favorite aspects of the Jewish interpretive tradition is the mileage the sages get out of the text of Tanakh. I recently heard Rabbi Ethan Tucker referencing a, a song from the musical Hamilton and comparing the way the rabbis of the Midrash read the Torah to how one might read a love letter. A lover who receives a letter from their beloved will find meaning in the placement of a comma or an unusual word choice. If we read the Torah as a letter from God, the, the more lovesick we are, the more we tend to read meaning into every pregnant pause, every unconventional spelling and unexpected phrasing. The rabbis of the Midrash exemplify this approach, seeming to say, if we yearn deeply to hear the voice of God, we take even little details of the text very seriously. We read not just between the lines, but between every letter. So it's no surprise that the Midrash finds something of note in the very first verse of Parshat Devarim. And I quote, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Chazarot, and Dizahav. It begins, Yisrael. These are the words which Moses addressed to all Israel. Immediately we might ask, why does it not just start with Vayomer Moshe, Moses said, or Vaydeber El Kol Yisrael, Moses spoke to all Israel. Why does it start with these are the words? Of course, the sages asked the same question. Rashi, following the Midrash, Sifrei Devarim, and the Targums, which are ancient Aramaic translations of Tanakh, reads words here as words of rebuke. After all the Midrash reasons, uh, look at other uses of Davar or Devarim, the word words in Tanakh. Many of those usages precede a rebuke or an admonition, such as in Amos 1 or Jeremiah 7 and others. So, if the seemingly extraneous use of the word words, devarim, in the passage indicates rebuke, where is this rebuke? Read in full, Rashi's comment explains, and I quote, because these are words of reproof, and he is enumerating here all the places where they provoke God to anger, therefore he suppresses all mention of the matters in which they sinned, and refers to them only by a mere allusion contained in the names of these places out of regard for Israel or for the honor of Israel, end quote. It is the place names themselves that include the rebuke. Where Moses seems to be just listing a bunch of place names, he's in fact alluding to the events that happened there. It's like when I remind my wife about the late night stop at the service area near Rochester, New York on a car trip to Michigan, I don't need to add, you know, when both kids were vomiting in their car seats. Believe me, she remembers. So the Israelites presumably cringe at the mention of these very place names. This raises the question, though. Why not be more explicit? Everyone knows what happened. Why does the text not just spell it out? Why not just say it? The first verse could have been like this. These are the words which Moses spoke with all Israel beyond the Jordan, reproving them because they had sinned in the wilderness and had provoked the Lord to anger on the plains 
over against the Sea of Suf in Faran, where they scorned the manna, and in Chazarot, where they provoked to anger on account of flesh, and because they had made the golden calf. End, end quote. In fact, that's exactly how it was rendered by the ancient Aramaic translation Targum Onkelos. However, the text of Torah itself is much more subtle, not mentioning these specific events at all, just the places. I propose two reasons that Moses might be circumspect with respect to Israel's sins in the wilderness. First, the dignity of humans, the dignity of every person, is a central Jewish value. Conversely, public humiliation is a very serious offense. The Talmud underscores the seriousness by stating that anyone who humiliates another in public, it is as though he were spilling blood. Quoted above, Rashi, attri Rashi attributes this, this circumspection, this subtlety, to God's concern for Israel's honor or glory. This leads us to ask why God is so concerned about Israel's honor. Certainly human dignity is important, according to the Talmud. Guarding the dignity of another takes precedence even over the observance of a prohibition in the Torah, according to the, to the Talmud, according to Tractate Barachot. But even more fundamentally, God loves Israel, and we care about the honor of those we love. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. The second reason is more practical. This speech from Moses isn't about dwelling on the past. The sins of Israel aren't decisive enough to fracture the relationship. No, Israel has a mission, a shlichut, something to accomplish. Just a few verses later, God tells the people that it's time to get moving. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn, journey on. It's been 40 years, and it's not the time for rehashing old arguments or bringing up failures of the past. That would be a distraction from the task at hand. We can learn lessons from both of these reasons. First, if you love someone, honor them, even at your own expense. Get in the habit of safeguarding others' honor and reputation. The starting point for this is being in touch with your own infinite value. Only one who is secure in their place, who has reputation to give, as it were, is able to guard others' honor generously. Rabbi Shlomo Wolby puts it well. And I quote, The beginning of all individual work is specifically the experience of man's exaltedness. Anyone who has never focused on man's exaltedness from his very creation and whose only self-work is to know more and more about the bad sides of himself and to make himself suffer as a result, that person will sink deeper and deeper into despair and in the end will make peace with the bad out of sheer lack of hope of ever changing it, end quote. And as Yeshua said, similarly, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them shall fall to the ground apart from your father's consent, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you are worth more than many sparrows, End quote. Once you are secure in your own value, you become free to turn towards ensuring that those you love are properly reminded of their intrinsic worth. And for the second reason, who hasn't rehashed old arguments, allowing themselves to focus on their own anger or unresolved feelings of betrayal, processing their own anger in the guise of rebuking another? There's always this temptation when you're in an argument to reach into the bag and bring out old offenses, recycling these weapons that were once used to hurt you and hurling them back at their original owner. But to do so is rarely helpful. I find this to be particularly relevant as a parent. Certainly some of the rebukes directed towards my children are for the sake of their edification and growth, but all of them? Hardly. 
Sometimes it's more about me than what is about than about what is best for them, expressing my own anger instead of edifying them sensitively. On the other hand, Moses seems to anticipate Paul's words, let no harmful word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for building up others according to the need so that it gives grace to those who hear it, from Ephesians. And so in one verse, we find deep teachings about how to relate to each other by imitating the Creator. May he strengthen our hands to preserve each other's honor, and when we must rebuke, to do so in proper measure and out of love. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, for more commentaries, check out umjc.org slash commentaries.